Well, it probably originated where, like, when I grew up, my parents were always like, you know, nothing good is going to come quick or easy, right? It all takes hard work and it takes determination and time. So that was, you know, a big overarching um, theme when I was growing up. But I think when I actually realized, like, the concept of small wins is when I was talking to someone early in COVID. That was Shannon Gregoire on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with veterinary student uh, Shannon Gregoire. I think I'm still butchering that because she said it was French and we had we joked about it at the end of the podcast there. But it was interesting to actually interview a vet student because I do know a few vet students, but Shannon is very active in the veterinary industry already, which I thought was really unique. And what was also unique is to kind of get a veterinary perspective on the people problem in vet med. And because this podcast is all about the people of veterinary medicine, it's interesting to have somebody who is very new to the industry still, isn't practicing medicine, but is on these rotations and going in and understanding, you know, when, how could she tell that a practice was really functioning or uh, as Josh Weishman says, flourishing, you know, when is that practice doing really well? And when has she been a part of a practice that maybe wasn't doing so well and she could kind of tell. And so to kind of hear this idea, an outsider's perspective, who's about to go into the field and has thus far dedicated a lot of time and money to do so, you know, what were some of the goods, you know, goods and bads and how do we learn from that? And, and, and more importantly, how do we get better? And there are so many parallels that I, again, that I've seen in my own life and to hear somebody, especially, um, that's so fresh in the industry and so many things that it took me a long time to understand or to grasp. And to, as far as like the human dynamic goes and to hear somebody that's already aware of a lot of these thought processes and ideas, I think really sets her up for success. So this was really a great, um, episode and, um, she's heavily involved with vet candy and yeah, she's just very, very active and I'm not sure how she manages to do it all while still be, still being a vet student. Although I guess for all you practice owners out there, it's probably the same thing, right? Like you're trying to run a, uh, a veterinary business, but if you want to be involved in the industry, you know, you got to f- make the time to do the same thing. So I guess we all deal with this time constraint on some level or or another. However, with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. So yeah, so thanks for taking time out of your day to to chat with me. What part of the country are you in? I'm right now I'm in Pasadena, California. Oh, you're in California. Oh, so it's like 730 for you then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was on I was on the East Coast for a couple weeks and I'm actually flying back. Uh, end of next week. So I've been bopping around okay. a lot. <laughs> All right. What do you, so yeah, so you went, you went coast to coast. How's uh, California been? It did. Um, it's been good. I mean, I always love the weather here. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> there you go. Awesome. Well, if you're okay to get started, I, I have, uh, I'm ready to, to learn more about you and your journey and I've never gotten the opportunity to, well, I take that back. I, I do have a friend, another friend who is going to to school, uh, who is a vet med student. However, um, he's got quite a different journey. So he's a little bit unique. So I'm not sure he, he really counts because he already had so much vet med experience in the industry. So, oh. yeah. um, I don't know. Do you know, uh, Sam Schopler, Schopler? I don't know. I can't Mm-mm. remember. No. Um, yeah, no. he's pretty active in the, in the industry. He worked <laughs> for pet desk for a while and then, um, oh. so I've known him through like a lot of the industry events and stuff like that, but, and then he decided to go to vet school, but anyways, that story aside, nice. um, so I only have one, <laughs> I only have one canned question and this one may be a little bit shorter because you haven't mm-hmm. quite gotten there yet, but I mean, what, for you, what was, what was the deciding fa- How did you end up? in vet med like what was the path that led you decide to apply to vet school Mm -hmm. and spend all the money and all the hard work to (laughs) to make this happen 
<laughs> emphasis on all the money. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's like usually two groups of people in vet school. One that's like, I'm a vet since I've been in a diaper and the other one's like, I don't know. I just ended up here somehow off the train or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I am right. So I'm the, the first one of those, you know, since I was, you know, as old as I can remember, my parents said, all you ever wanted was a pony and a cow for some reason. And when I got a little bit older, I was like, I want to be, you know, a horse doctor, you know, an animal doctor. And they're like, well, that's a veterinarian. And I was like, okay, how do I do that? And they're like, well, you have to do really well in school and you have to, you know, learn what a vet, you know, does on a daily basis and keep, keep working hard. It takes a lot of hard work to get there. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And I think my relatives got sick of asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up, they started asking me, do you still want to be a veterinarian? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, so for you, it's kind of always been this like lifelong goal since you were young, like you kind of wanted to be, mm-hmm. a lot of times, sometimes you hear it's like, I wanted to be the doctor to the animals, right? Like I wanted to cure the animals. Like sometimes for you, was there a specific moment? Like sometimes I've heard, from other DVMs, they're like, yeah, when I was younger, I like there was one story I can't remember who it was, and they had seen a a dog had gotten hit by a car, and it was like all jack, you know, it was like it was in pretty terrible shape, and then like you know the doctor, the 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 veterinarian comes into the <laughs> rescue and heals this animal, and for them that was mm-hmm. like this, like whoa, like I want to be able to do that. Was there one moment with within your life that was kind of the deciding factor, or how did it like yeah, how did it come about? Hmm. Well, I don't think there's any like one moment that made me decide I want to be a veterinarian because I had already like had that in my head, but there were a couple like um, reassuring moments, I guess you could say. Um, one of them was when I was little, <laughs> when we first got um, a puppy, when my brother was maybe about five and it was a couple days before Christmas one year and they decided to tumble down the stairs together <clears throat> So that was nice. And uh, my brother was fine, but my dog broke his leg in the tumble. So it was like three days before Christmas, we rushed the dog to Tufts is the closest um, ER to us at the time. And it was just like, so uh, such a stressful um, situation, but having an amazing um, orthopedic surgeon, he put like a pin and a couple screws in my dog's leg and he was perfect. You know, a little bit of rehab, a little bit of (laughs) rest and relaxation. And he was great. And that just blew my mind how, you know, the dog was, you know, couldn't walk. We had to scoop him up and bring him in the car and rush him over. You know, it's the, one of those like big experiences that'll always be in my head. Um, and the second one would probably be, <laughs> I went to a sleepover one night um, with my friend across town and I come home the next day and the horses were out in the backfield and it was time to bring them in. And we go out there and, you know, the other ones come running up to the fence and mine is like taking her time. Usually she's first, you know, everywhere she's first. So it's very weird. And we go out there and she's bleeding on her back um, right leg. We're like, what the heck? She's, you know, Mr. Vish gets into a lot of stuff. She probably shouldn't. If People, you know, no horses, they get into whatever you don't want them to. And she had this nice little gash at the bottom of her foot. Um, and we were like, Oh, you know, she could kind of walk on it, but very slowly. So called the vet out, got an emergency call and, you know, she came in, she cleaned it up, looked at it and said, well, you're extremely lucky <laughs> that she didn't slice through any of her tendons in that area. So huge relief. She's like, you're so close. Like you don't need surgery, but it's going to take a really long time to heal. So the next, you know, year to 18 months was rehabbing this injury. And the first, you know, six months was washing this wound and changing the bandages, you know, two to three times a day with warm water and betadine solution and making sure proud flesh didn't grow. And it was extremely intensive um, work, but I loved it. It was so cool to see it heal up and then to eventually get her to be able to bear weight again, bear weight of a saddle, and then eventually be able to hold me again was this huge, enormous process, but it was, you know, super thankful to that veterinarian that uh, helped us through that. 
So you actually, I mean, listening to you tell that story, it sounds like you actually enjoyed the process of like watching this healing process come to fruition. Mm -hmm. there were, it wasn't just the fact that the end result, it was actually the process, right? In a lot of times, which I find unique because I think, you know, as I talk to a lot of my friends who are in the vet med space that are in the in the in the field of mm. trying to help the the human problem, help fix the human element problem, and some of the burnout and stuff that we see in the industry. Yep. There's this idea that it comes back to like you you can't. I think now that I'm thinking about this out loud, I think it also comes back to the idea that you can't in any industry or any profession you have to enjoy the process, right? right. Like if you're just if you're just looking to enjoy the end goal, and you don't enjoy the process. Um, as Dr. Rob Trimble just, just told me the other week, you know, it's like, if we're not happy now, then when? And so I think it's really fascinating that you actually enjoyed the process where like, if I think about myself, I would just be waiting for it to heal. Like I wouldn't be enjoying this right. process of like <laughs> trying to understand what was going on there. Um, which I think is fascinating. And, and I, I think also probably sets you up for success in the long run because you enjoy that process. Like, so as you look forward to, graduating are you looking to work with i mean do you want to work with large animal i mean what are your thoughts after do you want to do something non-traditional do you not you know get into a uh, you know like an industry that su supports vet med or what are you thinking you want to do straight out of school that's a really good question and just a little aside from what you had just finished saying is it comes back to kind of celebrating the small wins you know so it's not just the end point of that journey but it's realizing all the steps, all the forward progress that you're still making, even though you might not be toward your end goal, every small step toward that goal should also be celebrated, right? And it kind of creates a, a better reward system for yourself too. So you're not always just falling short, falling short, you're actually accomplishing something. Um, what do I want to do when I grow up? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the only small animal rotation because of all the COVID stuff that I actually got to do in this past year of school was small animal ER. And it's this independent owned their um, internal medicine during the day and ER after hours. And so I went in for two weeks with them and they have this amazing culture at their little independent hospital. And it's actually a couple Western grads, which is awesome, local to the area. And they just had so much fun with it, but also did awesome medicine. Like they were fantastic and their whole team like loved working there. And they, you know, had relationships, you know, that were friends outside of just work. So they all enjoyed coming together and you could just feel in that environment that no one hated being there, which is surprising and kind of sad to say about vet med that a lot of places that is the case. So to find somewhere that everyone was so excited to do what they were doing. And even when we were crazy and there's like a list of eight patients coming in that have called and we're like, oh my God. And there's, you know, there's block cats and there's, you know, bloody diarrhea and there's, you know, maybe who knows, parvo puppy, who knows? So it was, it was just crazy, but it was so much fun because they were so good at bringing me and the other student that I was paired with, bringing us along and helping us, um, kind of think through the process and prioritizing the, the cases and the text would, you know, help us with any kind of hands-on skills that we want to learn and work with them too. So you can, we learn probably almost as much from the ER text as we did from the doctors. So um, that was really interesting. So that really piqued my ER interest. Um, I still love horses, still love equine medicine, but I think that for me, Eventually, I want to open my own practice, and I'll probably have large animal or equine as a portion of that, but I don't think working in an equine-only practice is in the cards for me. So, we are going to, you said something fascinating there, so we're going to double back a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I do have other questions about this, but you, you said something, you know, you know, celebrating the small wins. I think this this concept or this idea, I don't know, maybe I'm making judgments because it took me a long time to realize some of, some of life's greatest lessons, you know, until mm -hmm. much later in life. So I'm curious, how did you, how did you develop this mindset? How did you, cause it's not a small thing to think about. It's not, 
in any aspect of your life. It's not, mm-hmm. especially as somebody who's involved in technology and tech, right? Like what we're seeing now that this instant gratification and we're seeing the mm-hmm. problems that social media and um, is creating where, I mean, the developers, you know, the original developers that like, you know, Facebook and some of these organizations, I mean, they literally mm-hmm. call it like, we got to send them a dopamine hit, right? Like they know what they're doing. Yeah. And a lot of times I don't want to, I don't want to get in the, into the idea that I think that I'm demonizing any of these organizations and that there's like, you know, Dr. Evil's there, like right, right. Big over the world. <laughs> I think initially they had good intentions, but the machine has gotten rolling and they have learned how to, and they've learned how to, you know, essentially social engineer or hack the human mm-hmm. behavior to get them more involved and to use the app more, to, to continue to use the app more which has had a bunch of downstream overall downstream effects. So Mm -hmm. with that disclaimer being said, yeah. I mean, how did you kind of come to this in a world where everything's about instant gratification and being able to, to understand that there's a long game in a lot of things in a lot of aspects of life and being able to enjoy the journey or enjoy the small wins, the, the things along that, how did you come to this? thought process, like come to this realization or thought process? Well, it probably originated where like when I grew up, my parents were always like, you know, nothing good is going to come quick or easy, right? It all takes hard work and it takes determination and time. So that was, you know, a big overarching um, theme when I was growing up. But I think when I actually realized like the concept of small wins is when I was talking to someone early in COVID and we were just having a conversation about like how our lives are going and um, you know, all the things that the big things that we had accomplished and something that stood out to me is that they said, well, don't forget your small wins. <laughs> and I kind of, I was like, what? And then I like, don't forget to celebrate your small wins. Like you've had, you've gotten to vet school, you're doing all these great things, but on the way there, all the steps that you've also accomplished to get into vet school or to get these internships or, you know, all this hard work you've put in to get the grades that you get. Those are all things that you should be celebrating too. And all things that um, deserve to have like just this big celebration. And I think because they aren't as maybe as, you know, a big of an idea. So that's not like that huge dopamine hit that you're used to when, you know, a post gets a thousand likes or something, or, you know, you get this huge graduation ceremony and it's a blast of dopamine because you finally reach the top of that mountain. But every year that you accomplish every semester, every thing of exams that you get through and do well, you should celebrate those. And so, you know, every time that there's like something little, even, um, you know, you win a scholarship, you know, for a couple thousand dollars or something like that. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Like you should do something for yourself, you know, reward yourself somehow so that you get that dopamine hit for yourself. It doesn't have to be big or extravagant. You don't have to go to Hawaii, but you could, I don't know, go get your nails done or, you know, (laughs) buy a book or, you know, carve out some time to go to the beach because that's what you like to do. Just something to kind of reward yourself by acknowledging that you just accomplished something, even if it's not huge by anyone else's standard is still worth celebrating. Yeah. I mean, I guess to tie it back is like, uh, Jared Lanier, he's done a lot of work on like how like social media has hacked our lives and, and how we've kind of become the dog, you know, like, cause there's this idea that, <laughs> but I think it, it ties in great with what you're talking about, because I think mm-hmm. we can use some of those, those tools that they're using, to, I think to better our lives rather than to make us addicted to a platform or a tool. Mm. Um, because they have, they've figured out this reward system, right? Like they have figured out how do I give somebody a reward to make them want to come back, right? So every time right. they get this reward, they want to come back. And I think it's important to think about that, right? Like you're, you're 100% right. It doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be extravagant, but just mm. something small that keeps you going, that gives you that 
just that little boost or that dopamine hit or whatever you want to call it right. to kind of continue on the next rung, right? To get to that mm-hmm. next lever, that next letter, uh, ladder, rung in the ladder and kind of move up your journey, right. which I think is a great segue because you also were talking about how you, you kind of did this like rotation at a small animal practice and you walked in and you felt that this practice had a great culture. Like mm-hmm. you felt something there somebody, so you're, you're an outsider and you're coming into this practice and you felt that this place had a great culture. So for any practice owner that's out there listening or, or Mm -hmm. you know, a practice manager that's listening, what were some of the key elements that you as an outsider have never been there before coming in and immediately being like, wow, this seems like an amazing place to be at? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, like, I mean, they knew we were coming Um, and so they were, everyone knew that we were going to be there and they were excited to see us, you know, they're excited to meet us, hear a little bit about us. And, you know, we got to introduce, um, them to us as well. So that was super helpful. And the doctors were pretty open about, you know, whatever you guys want to learn, like, let us know, you know, whatever your goals are, whatever you think are weaknesses that you want to work on, like, just tell us and we'll do our best to help you. And the techs were like, yeah, like whatever, like you want to, you know, get involved with, you know, whatever your comfort level is, like, just do that. Like if you want to help with a couple little things, or you want to start, um, you want to work on placing catheters, or you want to work on, you know, um, placing endotracheal tubes, like whatever you want to do, just let us know. And we can help you get those opportunities. So it was super like encouraging for them to be open to teaching us and to be, um, very just welcoming and have that like teaching mindset because they knew we were students coming in and that was super helpful. Yeah. So it sounds like, so my buddy, good friend of mine, Mm. amazing person, uh, Josh, he, Josh Feisman, he, he's owned a couple practices and then now he runs flourish veterinary, uh, veterinary consulting. And so he's, he's one of these people that's working on this idea of helping practices fix their culture problem. And Mm -hmm. he's actually writing a book for AHA um, on actually how to go about creating culture in the practice and really kind of developing. And, and I guess where I, where I'm going with this is it's all, you know, he always talks about this idea of like providing the framework or all Mm -hmm. the necessary ingredients to set somebody up to be the best they can be. And he gave this analogy that it was, you know, like you wouldn't go out in the middle of winter and implant a bunch of seeds and then get pissed off at the seeds because they're not growing. Right. You'd be like, well, (laughs) it's winter. The conditions, the conditions aren't right. Right. But if you, if the conditions are right, then those seeds will grow and they'll flourish and they'll, they'll become everything that they're meant to be. And they're they're They'll be able to reach their full potential. Right. And it sounds like listening to your story that, this practice had provided the conditions, the necessary conditions for you to flourish in this environment, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from being excited from the day that you came in to really being open to saying like, Hey, whatever you want to learn, we're here to, we're here to help you. Um, There just seemed to be this structure that really gave you the opportunity to kind of grow and flourish into whatever you wanted to be at that practice. Yeah. Like I feel like sometimes you walk in and there's kind of an air of like annoyance or like, Oh, you're just in the way. And you know, that kind of like shuts the door before it even has a chance to open. Cause you're like, Oh, well, I don't want to step on these toes or I don't want to, you know, cause them any sort of grief by being here. So when they're super open and having us involved and they want us involved, that really opens the door for people to, open themselves to the opportunity and then get more involved. So by the end of the two week rotation, we're actually really sad. (laughs) Like, Oh, we have to go back to, you know, strictly zoom class now and exams, but this has been like so much fun and you just learn so much better when you're there doing it and have your hands on the animals and you're doing the procedures than you ever do on a camera. So it was a really nice experience. Yeah. And you know, when you, you made that statement, like, you know, it's like sometimes you walk in and you just feel like you're in the way. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, that was a big, that was kind of an eye opening like perspective because I've always, sometimes I've wondered not only in places that I have worked or been a part of where there has been a, just a bad culture and, and just a bad, it's just something you can't put your finger on it. And then I've also mm-hmm. been in practices where you're just like, 
Ooh, man, you guys got a lot of, you know, there, there, there seems to be a lot of work that needs to be done here as far as like fixing the people problem. Mm. And I think it comes back to that kind of that idea that you talked about this idea of the people around you and your colleagues aren't in your way. Like you're there to support them. Right. right. So I guess where I'm going with this is like, I've, I've tried to take the mindset that like, I don't work for my, like my employees don't work for me. I work for my employees. So how mm. can I, how can I give that? How can I help them? Because if I help them and give them everything they need, then they're going to help the company, which in turn then helps me. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's some selfish motive there, but also in the fact that, you know, again, hopefully trying to provide them the framework to, to flourish. Right. But what I, what, what I also thought about is like specific examples where it is, it's like somebody new comes in and then it's like, you're in the way, right? Like they've been <laughs> hired because they have a specific skill set, but then it's like, mm -hmm. but yeah, but I don't have time to really like walk you through how we do it and all the stuff mm -hmm. we, you know, there's, cause there's a different, there's differences that the medicine may be roughly the same, you know, we may be on the technical level, right? You may mm -hmm. insert a, you may draw blood the same way, no matter where you are, but there, the workflow of the practice is probably different. And, right. you know, there's a learning curve in the, the practice management system you're going to be using. How are you guys entering, you know, your notes and, you know, how, how do I request a prescription, re, you know, refill mm -hmm. and how do I say yes to this and all this stuff. And if you're just treated as somebody who's in the way that immediately, it immediately sets you up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when people like in the upper management of a hospital, you know, it goes back to kind of celebrating those small wins and giving people encouragement where they're good. So I was reading, I forget, it might've been a Harvard business review, but I honestly can't remember. Um, it was talking about how you give criticism and that when you're doing like a review, like a biannual, annual review of an employee or whatnot, that if you start with something that is wrong, they're immediately like shut down right? So they're not responding. They're not going to listen. And that review is just thrown out the window. But if you start with something positive and you talk about what they're good at, what you're congratulating them for, what you've seen them improve on and get better with, then they, you know, they get that dopamine hit, right? So they're, they want to do better. They want to do more. And then you can also put in, you know, I love these things that you're doing and like, you know, let's work on this next, so then they kind of think of it as a challenge and another way to get another reward, another dopamine hit. So then you kind of switch the way that you're, you know, kind of impacting their workflow and their abilities in a way that gives them that reward and that want to be better instead of, oh, my boss just thinks I suck. And he just told me all the things I'm bad at. In the end, he said, oh, you draw blood really good on the jugular. Right. So. Yeah. So like <laughs> we've always, I completely agree with you. I mean, we, I don't know, it's probably not just a text. It's probably not just a text saying, but it's, I think it's probably in a lot of industries, but we call it the crap mm -hmm. sandwich, right? Like start with something good. <laughs> what are things that we need to work on in the middle and then end with something good. Right. So like the, the middle kind of gets the bad kind of gets sandwiched by two, two good things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I also read a, uh, a, a book a while ago, it was called like the five, it was called the five minute manager. And it, it, what was interesting is there was this concept of really like getting out of the idea of micromanagement, right? Like we shouldn't mm -hmm. be micromanaging people, but how do you, but you still have to make sure. Cause like, if you're not intentional about the culture, you want to create the culture will create itself. And so you have to be intentional about what you want to happen within your organization and your business or your hospital. But how do you do it in a way that's not like micromanaging? What's interesting is one, they touched on the exact thing that you talked about in, in this idea of micromanaging, but looking for things that somebody's doing good, right? Mm -hmm. So always like if with somebody new, you know, make sure to call out the moments that they've done well, right? Like that right. they have done good. And that was really eye-opening to me because then it made me think like with, you know, with, te with teams that I've led, like I would go meet with a practice owner or manager and we would just be touching on like, you know, where, where things are at. And anytime they're like, Hey, you know, we've been working with tech Y and they've been amazing and we mm -hmm. really can't thank them enough. And not only did I make sure, and not only did I make sure that 
that person got that message. But I also wanted to make sure the entire team saw that that person was doing well, right? Like I felt mm-hmm. like if we can make, if we can share when somebody on the team is doing well, it just, it, rising tides rise all ships, right? So if they're like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, you know, they're doing really well, that's probably something else I should do. And then, you know, constantly trying to find how somebody else is doing really well, I think right. does create for a better culture and a, a better workplace. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely kind of switching, you know, because you you think of business and all the stuff that goes into that and it's mostly just, you know, people managing, right? So you're learning all the psychology and the sociology of people. I'm like, wow, maybe I should have done that as my undergrad degree instead of animal <laughs> science. <laughs> so, but, that, I mean, uh, that's a great... Oh, sorry to mean cut you off there. No, no, that's good. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, so that, that I think that's a great segue because you had also mm-hmm. talked about this idea that you you would eventually like to own your own practice. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we talk a lot about on the outside, um, and I, and actually with Dr. Rob Trimble, who runs the Veteran Entrepreneurship Academy, we talked about this idea that because um, he's at he's up at near CSU here in Fort Collins, in, in Colorado, and his whole goal is to bring the business aspect to vet med education, right? Mm-hmm. Like how can we help vet med students who are interested in business actually really learn about how to create a business in vet med? So what has been your experience thus far in vet school and exposure to the idea of actually being able to run a, a successful business once you you know get to that point? Well, it's funny. I'm actually participating in the VEA this summer. Oh, you are? Okay, so you know all about this then. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I do, I do. Um, But yeah, I guess, well, my background is, you know, I guess one of the things I always say is most of my family have been small business owners than not. So I've seen everything from, you know, my grandparents, one of them was in construction and did plaster and my cousins still do that today. And then another grandfather, he had a fruit truck and he would deliver fresh produce along with bakery items and various other things to the local community, you know, a long time before his time, I think now. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, my mom is in legal and then I have other uncles and different construction businesses and all that stuff. So I've seen a wide variety of a business outside of veterinary medicine, but it all comes down to the same principles and the same operating techniques And, you know, it's still about the people that you work for. Like, yes, veterinary medicine is for the care of pets, but I mean, people care for those pets, right? So it's still very people centric. So I think, I mean, we don't really get a lot of business in our veterinary school curriculum. So I joined the VBMA, the Veterinary Business Management Association. So I'm doing their honor certificate where you complete all these, um, this high number of lectures and then you, you know, do this whole portfolio um, with them too. So that was, you know, the closest thing we get to business curriculum air quotes (laughs) in vet school, because there's just so much medical knowledge that you have to learn in four years. It's like in the cracks of your time have to also, if you're interested, learn about business and pre COVID, my plan was to rotate to as many independently owned clinics in Southern California that I could, right? I wanted to go in and not only learn how they did their medicine, but I wanted to talk to their medical director and their hospital manager and really talk to them too and figure out what they thought was going good and what they thought needed to be improved upon. So I didn't really get that opportunity, but I will fourth year. I'm still going to about 10 different hospitals um, for about month blocks at a time. So that will still happen a little bit, but um, yeah, I think figuring out, you know, what people from different areas are doing is fantastic. And that's one of the reasons why I chose Western to begin with is because they give us the opportunity to really see how veterinary medicine is done across a plethora of different platforms. So you get to see every type of veterinary medicine, how it is in the real world, not just a teaching hospital, in one environment, you get to be thrown into like, you know, probably hundreds of different environments by the time you graduate, which is awesome. So you made a statement there, which I thought was really, I mean, again, really, really wise, especially not for for not like practicing yet. 
Mm. And you said, you know, people care for these pets. So it's still, still a people problem. What I found really fascinating about this is mm. that, well, you know, over the years that I've worked in this industry, I've realized this problem to some degree, but it really didn't come to fruition until COVID, right? Because everything went to this curbside model. Mm-hmm. And there were so many associates or even um, practice owners who were still practicing medicine that were like, I love the fact, I love I love curbside. I wish we could do this all the time <laughs> because it takes the, the pet parent out of the exam room and mm. it allows me to work just with the patient. And what is interesting, I think what is interesting about what you said is that you realize that it is still very much a, a people problem. Like you're still... And maybe even go back what you said a little bit ago. It's like, you know, maybe I should have went into psychiatry or psychology, right? To be able right. to better understand these people <laughs> problems. And it's so true. Um, so with that being said, like, how did you, yeah, how did you, how have you already realized that? And then what do you, how do you think you're going to approach that once you start practicing? Um, well, I've done a lot of reading. I've been trying to read a lot of different people books, a lot of leadership books. One of the ones I'm working on now is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Yeah, yeah really great book. Kind yeah. Of, yeah, fantastic book. Weird title, and I think it might turn people off, but you should definitely <laughs> read it. <laughs> yeah. Definitely um, read that. And I just like doing a lot of like mindset research and thinking, you know, more into the psychology of people and everything. And yeah, I've heard that a lot of people, you know, want to keep cur- curbside forever. But, you know, pets don't medicate themselves and they don't feed themselves and they don't really do anything for themselves. So veterinary medicine is quite like pediatric medicine in humans, right? Because these pets are basically like treating someone's child and it's the parent's responsibility to do everything for this child. So they need to be involved and aware and participating in whatever you're doing. They need to, you know, understand to their best ability and to give consent and to be really a part of that team. And I think, you know, a lot of veterinarians get jaded and burned out because of difficult um, interactions with some less than uh, flourishing customers, which, you know, when your family member is in distress or in pain, like it brings out sometimes not the best in people and even the worst in some people. And I understand that that takes a toll over time, but, it's something that you try really, really hard not to then inflect on everyone else that comes in your door. So I'm not quite sure what the exact solution to getting that is, but I don't think curbside should be here to stay. Yeah, Maybe for I, people who are busy, you know, and would like <laughs> that right. option, curbside could should still be like an option for people who are super busy. Yes. But should it be like the hallmark of a hospital? No. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it, um, it does make it difficult because, you know, like I have a really great relationship with, um, our DVM and Mm -hmm. yeah, like the phone conversation just isn't the same as, you know, like when you're in the exam room and you actually get to talk to them and, um, and I guess I also share a different relationship because I'm involved in the industry. And so we talk about the industry and it's just a, it's just a very different dynamic, um, when you do have that, that person to person interaction, I also love that you said that vet meds a lot like pediatrics. I think that is a great (laughs) analogy. I had never, I'd never thought about that or heard or heard that before in your, I think you're hundred percent right. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's really fascinating. I I love Mm -hmm. that analogy. Thanks. The other thing (laughs) I wanted to you to dig into a little bit, because I've been very fascinated with the vet tech problem, um, Mm. in the industry and you mentioned when you went to this, when you were doing like, is it rotation? Is that the right term? Is that what yeah, yeah. 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 So you were doing this rotation and you were working with vet techs and you mentioned how much you were learning from these vet techs. Mm-hmm. And what did you see again? Because you saw an example where it seemed like the hospital really kind of had things set up right. So mm-hmm. what do you think when you watch the interaction between these techs who were clearly educated and skilled at what they do? I mean, a quick example of things I've heard is like, you know, I have some friends that own hospitals and they're like, our doctors don't draw blood. Like 
the vet techs do that. <laughs> and they do it far better than our doctors can. So like most mm-hmm. of the time I won't even let them do it because they haven't done it in so long that they're not going to be as, you know, they're not going to be as good at it. Right. But it's this idea of like leveraging a vet tech skill set and allowing them to do it has been one aspect that I've heard a lot. But what did you see kind of being on the ground, a person on the outside coming in where you're learning from these techs and then this hospital had to see, seem to have a great culture. Mm. What were they doing to really support this like really valuable role within a within the veterinary hospital? Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, I think that it boils down to like the trust between the doctors and the technicians because when, well, we were still curbside. So, you know, no people were allowed in the ER and people would park outside and they'd call in and then they would send a tech out to kind of assess the patient. So then the tech would go out and either, depending on the severity, either leave them in the car if we were busy or bring them in the building. And so the technician had to bring a report back to the doctor and kind of give them, you know, the lowdown on what is this pet situation, you know, how severe do they think it is and, you know, help them kind of prioritize the list on who they need to go see first. So I think that really gives that importance and that trust and that ability for the tech to really help the doctor with their, um, their ability to really serve the patients in the best way, because when you have someone's opinion that you trust that, you know, this one's really dire, we need to go see this one now, or, oh, this dog, you know, it probably just ate something it wasn't supposed to, but nothing like life-threatening, right? You know, they can hold on a minute is really helpful. So then the doctor can focus on, okay, well, this this patient might be dying, you know, we got to figure this out. And then you can send your text to then, um, help you with that. And then you can have someone, you know, triaging the next patient. So it's just that relationship of trusting them and working together in order to make everyone's workflow a little bit easier. Yeah. I think, you know, you're right. Trusting them. And uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Sarah Andre, she talks about, she, she was, her and I were talking about this, um, how she leverages text. And then she was actually taught, which was something I didn't realize is that I guess mm-hmm. like text can get certified in certain areas, like yeah, you know, specialties. specialist tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was an option, but it was fascinating to, to listen to her say like, if I, she's like, if I got thrown into an emergency situation and say like a dog or something gets hit by a car and I have an ER tech, she's like, I'm going to lean on them to tell me what we need to do. And I'm just going to be there to give the okay, right? She was like, Mm. but really at the end of the day, I'm kind of leaning on their expertise because like, I'm not an ER specialist, you know, and, and they're, they know this. And I think that's incredibly, that was kind of fascinating. Of course, you know, her as the, the licensed doctor DVM has to say, okay, I agree with what you're saying and we're not going to cause more harm than good. And, you know, all Mm -hmm. this legalities that come with that, but what I thought was interesting there is actually being able to lean on a person that does have expertise and then, yeah, again, providing the framework to really use and leverage that knowledge. And I don't know, I think there's a lot of ways we could probably look at that, but yeah, I think interesting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I had worked in a, a small animal teaching hospital at Tufts for a little while and they had some of those, um, technicians that were certified and some of them were, um, ER. And I forget there was a couple other different ones too. And that was my first experience with a, a, like a specialized technician and they're really good. Like they know, they know a lot about what they're talking about. And the doctors did come in and really weight their opinion of how their patient's doing, because, you know, they're providing continuous nursing. So they see the patient all, you know, the whole shift all day. And the doctor just comes in a couple of times to check on them. So the opinion of these technicians and how they think they're doing and what therapies are, are going on is really helpful for the feedback so that it allows the, the doctor to then, you know, really take that into consideration when they're developing a plan and weight opinions of what other people are thinking too, to see how well the medicine is going that they're trying to help with this patient. So that was really awesome to see. So you've talked a lot, you know, you talked, you also talked a lot about like having a lot of your family in a, you know, in a whole bunch of different businesses and now like doing these rotations and like, I mean, what sort of, I guess it's, I guess it's interesting because there, there, 
in vet med, vet med when it comes to the business model, but yet it's also kind of like another small business. So mm-hmm. what were some things that you have seen that you kind of take away that are like, yeah, these are similar problems that I've seen with, that my family has dealt with, but what are some of the problems and challenges that you think that you will eventually face as a practice owner that are unique to vet med? Mm, I think um, leadership styles and culture can um, either infect or impact any business, no matter you know what it is. So how you run your business and the culture that you create there is extremely um, impactful, positively or negatively, um, with how your business then grows or doesn't. Um, I think one of the big things veterinary specific would be that burnout and that compassion fatigue because it's such an emotional field, like unlike some construction or some legal things, it's very tied to emotion because it's a family member. And then, you know, all these big decisions, medical decisions have to be made. So, and then with the rise in um, everyone getting more pets because of COVID and things like that, it's just been a shortage of veterinarians because we can't, (laughs) we can't build up enough veterinarians to fill the demand. So I think that, you know, when our supply goes up a little bit and evens out with the demand, it might help out with that compassion fatigue a little bit better. So if you had to, again, coming back to this like culture idea Mm -hmm. and like, if you had to think of, you know, top three, you don't necessarily have three, but what would be your top Mm -hmm. items that you think that you think really impact creating a good organization? Um, one that really encourages their employees at any level to offer suggestions or improvements or say, Hey, this isn't working. We need to make it better. And then a second one would probably be like a leader who is good at problem solving where, they can change their leadership style depending on what problem is there. And then really showing that, you know, like you said, you know, you work for your employees and then they in return work for you. So it's kind of that give and take and they really see that you're invested in them. So then they'll invest back into you and your company and everyone wins at the same time. So what would be like, what would be like, what would you consider an investment in somebody, like, how would you like, so, so say right now you, we, mm. we give you the certificate, you give you the <laughs> diploma, your license, yeah. we drop you into a hospital and you're like, okay, now I got to figure that. I got to figure this out. <laughs> this is mine. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm not, yeah. this isn't like a quiz, but I'm just curious on what your <laughs> thought process is. You know, what would you, how would you start to look at like actually investing in your staff, like having been on the other side of it, you know, seen other businesses, mm-hmm. um, and now being in charge of actually making the investment in your staff, what does that look like for you? Mm. Well, I guess, you know, personal development and improvement is, it's kind of a weird word for it, but you know, like selfish and motivation. So you want to really encourage people to do things that they want to get better at, right? So you want to encourage them to, you know, go to CE or to attend different things so they can improve their skills. And then that reward process and that dopamine hit then reassures that and wants them, makes them want to do better again. So saying if you went into this, into this random clinic and you didn't know anyone and all of a sudden you like randomly bought it one day and you just have this organization of people, I think, you know, kind of starting with the culture and, you know, really starting to meet everyone and, figure out, you know, what makes them tick, what motivates them, what kind of personality type are they, what are they good at in the clinic and what is their role in the clinic? And you kind of have to feel all those things out before you can really make a plan to move forward to say, okay, well, I know these people, you know, this person's really good at this and this, but you know, this is the need in the company. How can I either get someone that's already present to kind of morph into that role because it's something that, you know, might be what they want to get better at or how can we bring someone else in that then fits that role, but complements the people that are still here. So it's a very 
big soft skill, I guess, to be able to go in as an observer and kind of just watch how people interact with each other. And then you can see, you know, what the hierarchy, I guess, would be in that hospital at that time and see if there's a way to, you know, elevate what's going on in that hospital to make the workflow better, to make people, you know, more enjoyed working there. So it's very, it's a very complicated thing to do and definitely not easy, especially, you know, if you go into this new clinic that's been doing, you know, this way for, I don't know how long, 30 years or whatever. (laughs) And there's, you know, a technician that's been there the whole time, you know, you got to really work with these people and, you know, build relationships with them before they're willing to change or do something for someone new. Yeah. Great point. Right. I mean, like one thing that we say in business all the time is people like to do business with people they know, like, and trust. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know your staff, how can you do business with them? Cause at the end of the day, you are doing business with them, right? Like there is a business exchange. Transaction. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to pay Mm -hmm. you X amount of money to accomplish X goal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're right. Like if you don't, if you don't have a relationship, if you don't know, like, or trust the person that you work for, you're not going to do good business with them. And right. it may be, you know, as you were, you were talking about this idea, you, you said what motivates them. And then it made me mm-hmm. think of a personal story when I was, you know, I was working for this other company and I was like having my, my yearly employee review or whatever. And I remember sitting mm-hmm. there and you know, there, my, my boss at the time was like, well, you know, how do you feel, you know, like, what are you thinking? And I'm like, well, I feel like I've really accomplished this goal, right? Like, I feel like I really, my job at the time was kind of like a, kind of like an account manager in some mm-hmm. regards. And so I was working, but in, in technology and it was like, well, you know, like, I feel like we've really grown our inside projects where, you know, I sold over, you know, over half a million dollars last year in revenue. I think I've kind mm-hmm. of accomplished this goal. I'd like to, to move on to something else. So I was like, right. for me, if it's just, Hey, now we're going to move the bar from a half million dollars a year in sales to, you know, $700,000 a year in sales, then I need to do something else. Like I need to look for another opportunity. Cause I just, I've done that and I don't mm-hmm. just, you know, doing more sales. It sure, maybe more money for me, whatever, but it just doesn't, doesn't fulfill me. Mm. And they're like, okay, great. And then I remember at the end, he's, he's like, okay, here's the plan for this year. So this year we're going to increase our sales goal by 15%. And it was like, I was like, did you not listen to me? Like, I, mm. I just told you that like, if it, if I'm going to be doing the same shit for lack of a better term, that like, <laughs> I'm not going to be motivated and I'm out. And it was like in one ear and out the other. And so sometimes you're, I think you're hundred percent right. Like listening, a lot of times it just involves listening, right? Like right. can you actually listen to somebody and understand what they're saying so that you can help give a, give them direction to be successful in your organization. Right. Exactly. So kind of figuring out what tools they need and then you providing those tools and then they'll build their own house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. So as we start to come to the end here, I mean, what are you, Mm. I mean, how are you, you said you're in your fourth year vet school? Yep. I'm just about to start my fourth year this summer. Yeah. Okay. So you're going into your fourth year. I mean, what sort of things are you looking forward to? Um, I, you you're, you said you're a part of the um, VAE, Veterinary yep. Entrepreneurship. Yeah. VEA. VEA. Yeah. VAE. Yeah. Slightly <laughs> dyslexic there. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what yeah. are you doing with, what are you doing with them uh, this summer? Uh, yeah. So it's basically the students um, apply and they get accepted and then a bunch of companies apply to the program too. And then there's like a matching process that goes on. Um, so the VEA kind of, does these like weekly meetings, like a couple times a week. And we talk about different business concepts and, you know, different leadership ideas and things like that. And then you're also working with um, the company that you got matched with. So this year I got matched with veterinary emergency group out of New York. Um, have had a great experience so far with them. And I think they're one of the recent um, really good, people to kind of look at for culture building. 
And that's something that is really emphasized um, in their company, which is, I mean, I think a lot of companies emphasize culture, but they don't always, I mean, they say one thing and do another, right? So I think in this case, they actually do what they say they're going to do. And I think that's really important for any business is to do what you say you're going to do and to really value every person in the company and try to, you know, whatever their goal is to help them achieve that within the company and try to, you know, elevate them there. So they really love to see the growth and the expansion of their employees and kind of really give them the tools they need to reach whatever it is they want to get to professionally um, and really just kind of support their team and then their team helps them grow. So I'm working on a project with them this summer. So that's really cool. Do you, do you know what project you, I mean, do you know what area, I mean, do you know what area of the business you're going to be working on with him? Are you allowed yeah. to talk? I don't know. Are you even, are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's yeah. already rolled out in a couple okay. of hospitals. So they have this program called scribes, right? So it's something that's not really in the veterinary space yet. Um, this concept of scribes is someone that is trained in medical knowledge um, and knows like all the different um, language of the medicine and they kind of follow the doctor around and they help them fill out the medical record, right? So they take notes while the doctor is talking to the patient and whatever the doctor says to them. And then they kind of do this baseline medical record of everything that happens. So the doctor then doesn't have to go back and do it themselves at the end of their shift or whenever they can find two minutes. So it's extremely time-saving and something that I think could be really leveraged in vet med to maybe, you know, get rid of some of that compassion fatigue and that stress of the doctors, because I've heard endless stories about how people have an eight or 10 hour day and then spend four hours doing medical records at night. Like that makes me nauseous. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah, it's completely commonplace. I mean, especially somebody that works in technology. I mean, we have doctors that, you know, they're constantly like, okay, well, how can I securely connect to our hospital or, or get access to our medical records without compromising us so that I can go home and do this at the end of the night. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so you get to the hospital at seven, you leave at seven, and then you're going to go home and, you know, and keep working. And yeah, I mean, that just sets up for burnout. I mean, I understand exactly. it, you know, especially if like you're the practice owner. I mean, it, it's kind of like it is at that point when you own something, it kind of becomes your baby. And so, you know, there are times that are like, sure, I may work, you know, a 12 hour, 14 hour day, but I try to limit those things. But right. Yeah, I think you're right. There is, a, I mean, it is very, very, very common that I see a lot where it's, you know, dentals, whatever, you know, whatever surgeries are there, mm-hmm. you know, patient visits, they've got this like, you know, weekly schedule of like everything that they do, but they never schedule time for this, you know, medical record up, you know, doing their soaps or whatever. Um, right. And then you also said something there about this idea of, you know, having an organization do actually do what they say they're going to do. And it made me mm-hmm. think of another anecdotal story of myself <laughs> or, yeah, it, it was, it was funny because, you know, it was with this company and it was like, when I was involved in the hiring process and we'd have people mm-hmm. come in and it was like, well, we don't really have a set schedule, right? Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, because in technology, things can come up. And so sometimes we have to be available after hours, but we know that. And so mm. as long as our clients are being taken care of, there's no really checking in and out. You know, as long as the clients mm. are happy, you can kind of do what you need to do throughout the day. Like you're an adult. Right. However, in the same token, if somebody took time for themselves, we were recording it. So it was like, we had this like loose, unlimited vacation time policy, as long as we mm. made sure you know, but then, the work gets done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then once they got hired, they were getting notices from like our HR person, like, Hey, you just to let you know, you know, you are, you know, for you, you're 40 hours over your, your vacation time. So you're actually negative. And then at the same time, this person was also expected to work the weekends if something came up, but they weren't a lot, but they weren't being like their vacation time vacation time wasn't accruing yeah. it was like this huh. weird like <laughs> completely conflicting story and it's like so how do you 
keep people happy? And how do you, how do you say one thing and do another, but then expect like everybody to be okay with it? And you're right. Sometimes it's just as simple as listening and then doing what, saying what you're going to do. Right. So with the last, I think we're down to the last like couple minutes here. (laughs) And I'll let you get back because I'm sure you, hopefully you've had breakfast or something, right? Because I know it's a little early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure if there's anything you want to promote or anything you want to talk about, but generally the end is kind of the shameless self-promotion. Is there anything <laughs> that you're going to be a part of? I mean, are you writing an article or something you want people to check out? Is there anything that you kind of want mm. people to be aware of the floor is yours? Um, well, for anyone that's listening, I am the co-host, one of the co-hosts of Vet Candy IRL. So it's me and a couple of veterinary students, and we bring on, you know, interesting people in the veterinary space, and we interview them and kind of find their backstories and everything, and learn different lessons from people in the veterinary community. I'm also going to be launching my solo podcast coming up soon, so keep an eye out for that. It's also going to be on the Vet Candy platform. I do a lot of writing with them. Um, some videos uh, as well with myvetcandy.com. So that is pretty awesome. I've learned a lot from them. And I think, you know, my first experience with Vet Candy too, I'll never forget it. It was right before COVID. And I was talking to Dr. Courtney Campbell, who also works with Vet Candy as well. And we were talking, talking. And at the end, he just goes, you know, you're probably the happiest vet student I've ever met. And I didn't know how to respond. I mean, I said, thank you. And, you know, (laughs) all that stuff. But part of me was like, you know, that's super flattering. But also, is that really sad for all the vet students out there? Are we really, you know, that upset? Like, I didn't become a veterinarian to be chronically stressed out and miserable. (laughs) You know, I make it a point to you know, take time for myself to do things that I love to travel when I can to eat really healthy, you know? So that I guess is a learning curve for me was to really learn how to balance that school. And I think it can certainly be extremely overwhelming, you know, this veterinary curriculum. So just vet students that are struggling just to know that it's okay to not study. I don't study eight hours a day. I don't think I've ever studied for eight hours a day, unless it's right before my exams, I will study eight hours a day for like, you know, the whole weekend and stuff, but I don't go my entire veterinary school year studying eight hours a day. I think I'd go clinically insane. (laughs) So, you know, kind of pacing yourself and acknowledging that you're not going to know everything right away and that it comes slowly with time. It's a skill that you develop, not, you know, an on switch when you're automatically a doctor. (laughs) So, um, yeah, just giving yourself the time to breathe, the approval to fail, because vet school is the time to fail. Fail now. If there's any time in your life to do it, do it now (laughs) before you're out, you know, as an actual doctor. So, and ask questions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, that's great advice because hopefully, uh, I hope that once you graduate, you, you're able to take that same stressful life balance and also continue to apply it into your professional career. I think that's yeah, really great advice. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's super important, you know, cause I think a lot of people in the vet space, you know, identify as veterinarian and that is it. Well, I'll challenge you to, you know, find something else that you are. If you couldn't be a veterinarian anymore, what would you be or who would you be? You know, what would you do? So I have, you know, different hobbies, different things that I love to do, different things that I enjoy. I'm a veterinarian by trade and by passion, but that's not who I am as a person or that's not everything about me, you know? So just to realize that you're still human, just like your clients, just like anyone else you work with, you're, you know, a veterinary professional, but you're also so many different things. And to just not carry all your personal weight on this one title it's like holding up, you know, that rock, you know, like Atlas holding up the world. You don't have to do that on your, on the shoulders, you know, where veterinarian is above your hands, That that's doesn't have to be the case. Yeah. I was talking with Dr. Leanne 
Biondetti Benetti. She's she's a owner. She owned a practice up in the uh, Toronto area, and now she's working on kind of solving that same problem. But she said the same thing that it took her a long time to realize that she was a veterinarian by trade and she didn't have to be a veterinarian all, you know, all the time. And I will say, and I can say from personal experience, like, you know, when I, when you get on the conference circuit and once that kind of comes back around and you mm-hmm. hop in like an Uber or you're on a plane and somebody sitting next to you and they're like, Oh, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to VMX, which is like this big veterinary medicine conference. And then they're like, Oh, Oh, so you work in vet med? Oh, my cat, you know, has like, so they start going into this problem. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm just a vendor. Like, I, I don't right. know. I'm not a veterinarian, but yeah. So then it's funny because then I've also, you know, all my friends that are vets are like, yeah, the only, a lot of the other times when I'm not a veterinarian is in public because I don't mm. want people to start asking me questions, which I think yeah. makes kind of like light of that. But I think it's a great idea of like figuring out how to like to balance that. And I think you're hundred percent right. Mm. So yeah, thank you so much. I know we've gone a little bit over over no the problem. allotted time here. So I really appreciate it. Enjoy California. Thank you thank so you. much for your time. Um, yeah, you I'm going to have to check me. you out on Vet Candy. Um, definitely. I haven't spent much time there. Maybe I need to check this this site out. You definitely need to check yeah. it out. There's so yeah. many cool things. And I write a lot of articles on there. So it's super fun. All right. I'm, I'm going to check it out. Oh, and then <laughs> one last question because as you might have just saw with with Dr. Leanne, I'm always terrible at butchering people's last names. So oh. <laughs> how do you how do you pronounce how do you pronounce your last name? Um a Gregoire. Gregoire. Oh, it's like yeah. French almost. It's like it's very French. It French? Yes. Is yep. it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess another sc- complete scroll moment, but um Dr. Celine, again, I won't even try her last name because she's <laughs> French Canadian. Oh and yeah. uh yeah, she owns youth youth bag, youth a bag. Do you know, oh. have you heard of that youth mm-hmm. mag? Anyways, I interviewed her and I was like, I actually interviewed her twice. And then the second time I was like, how do you say your last name? She's like, well, it's very, very French. And so I was like, all right, I'm just <laughs> going to stick with this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoy California. Yeah. And yeah, for looking forward me. to seeing what you do in the industry. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have yeah, a good have one. A good day. <laughs> Thanks.